May I have your attention, please? Good evening. You're listening to Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy another exciting episode of our show. Gentlemen, good evening. Welcome back to another episode of Straight Talk with Dana Mark. We're actually here on this holiday, which is a rarity for us, but we decided to do one anyway to honor the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But it's the sixth man, Dean Geronimo, and as always, from NJ to NC, I'm in the studio with my right-hand man, Mark Lee. So, Mark, tell me what's good in your neck of the woods, my brother. Well, you know, things are definitely rocking and rolling here in North Carolina. We had a lot of things going on at Haiti over the weekend. We had our monthly poetry slam, and of course, they dealt with social issues and uh, different things of that nature within the context of their poems. And then, of course, we had the three church services. Actually, the third church service, the six-eight church service that uh, is uh, pastored by Darrell Briscoe. They actually touched on Dr. King and touched on. Uh, you know, trying to live the life and not just honoring the, what he called the quotable Dr. King, but also the controversial Dr. King, because, you know, we all know the famous quote, the I have a mountain, uh, I have a dream speech, uh, you know, the uh, things of that nature. But, you know, he did tell folks to fill up the jail. He actually told him to do that right here in Durham as part of a protest. And, of course, he was very much against the Vietnam War and against a lot of other things that people, even to this day, would consider much more controversial than some of the other speeches that we are very familiar with. Even some of the things that he wrote about on the uh, Birmingham uh, letters would be definitely considered controversial in this day and time. As a matter of fact, I was thinking earlier today about the fact that in 1979, I was a um, senior, a rising senior, getting ready to go to, uh, it's either 79 or 78, but I believe it was my... uh, Junior, the in between the junior and the senior year, I went to a journalism camp, and part of what we had to do to write to get into that journalism camp was write an essay, and the essay was what would Dr. King do if he was living then. So we were talking about this, you know, uh, almost a decade after he had passed, or something along those lines. So now we are some mm-hmm. 50 years after he had passed, and as I was thinking about that, thinking about Reverend Barber and the Poor People's Market, a lot of the issues that are out there, some of the issues that we've even talked about on this show in the past, it occurred to me that a lot of the things that Dr. King was fighting for, yes, we have made some significant gains, but a lot of the things that he was talking about, we're still fighting for on a regular basis. We talked about the fact that fair housing is something that's going on right here in Durham, going on in New York, going on around the country. That was something Dr. King was about. We're in the middle of some uh, encounters with foreign governments in terms of wars and things of that nature at that at the time of his living it was the vietnam war but you know whether it's iraq or vietnam he also had some issues with that us fighting over there when we had issues over here that needed to be corrected as well that was one of the controversial <laughs> things that he definitely talked about and things of that nature and there's a lot of you know whether it's the prison industrial complex whether it's um housing, whether it's uh, things to do with fair house, fair pay, because, you know, he was talking about fair pay right. back then as well. So a lot of the issues that he was talking about, I hate to say it, but, you know, we are in 2020. He passed away in the late 60s. So a lot of those issues that he was fighting for are still being fought for on this day. I mean, you would think that we would have come 
a lot further than we have. And I'm not saying that we haven't made some advancements. There have definitely clearly been some advancements made. But at the same time, you have to think about what's going on and the fact that uh, a lot of what he was fighting for is still being fought for. So that's just my thoughts on Dr. King. And I was reflecting on that earlier today as I was thinking about some of the things going on in our world. I mean, we've even got people down in Puerto Rico protesting on today because and over the weekend because they found out that there was some uh, and they're asking for their governor to resign because they found there were some relief supplies that were down there that had been stored away that were in hiding or whatever they were doing with them and so it says protesters in Puerto Rico called for Governor Wanda Vasquez to resign Monday after stores of relief supplies were found unused in a locked warehouse over the weekend as the island wow. reeled from a powerful earthquake. So, you know, they found these unused things. There were people protesting, denouncing Vasquez, and holding signs with messages including government absent, criminal negligence. So there are definitely some people that were talking about some things going on in terms of protesting right there. So one one gentleman, as a matter of fact, I'm reading this article, says one gentleman says that he had never really even come out to protest. He says, I have never come out to protest, but this has caused me so much anger and indignation. Protester Ruby Oliveres told El Vatero newspaper, how is it possible that you say you care about the country and yet you let so many people die while hiding these supplies? News of the unused emergency supplies spread on social media Saturday when a local blogger posted a Facebook video of angry residents storming the facility, which housed water, cots, and other relief supplies dating back to Hurricane Maria in 2017. Now, uh, Ponce Mayor Maria Melendez said she was outraged by the discovery. She said she spent several days requesting cots and water. They sent me to Cabo Rio for the cots and to San Juan for the water. If I had known that those supplies were there, I would have demanded that they be taken out immediately. Uh, Vasquez claimed that uh, she was also in the dark about the stash of supplies and fired three top government officials over the weekend, the director of emergency management and the commissioner of the housing and family department. So it's just a crazy thing when in other parts of the world, we've got things like this going on. And I know that there are people that are right. not too pleased, not just with Puerto Rico, but other parts of the world as well. I've heard of, of reports of things going on with the fires in Australia and how a lot of people are feeling that that's not being handled well either. So, I mean, we've got these world issues going on and uh, folks are not necessarily happy with the powers that be around the world that are trying to uh, deal with and try to control these uh, disasters that are going on, not just here in the Americas, but also around the world. So definitely uh, we have to find ways to alleviate these problems when they happen and not have these kind of corrupt things that apparently are being accused of around a lot of different places around the world. So that's just one of my thoughts about that and things of that nature. It's just a shame when these kind of things happen. It definitely is. And, and, you know, I've said it before, we have to actually take a look at what we are uh, investing in, I guess you could say, and, and do a much better job of taking care of home before, you know, I mean, Puerto Rico for real, that's a part of home. It may not be a state, but at the same time, it's a part of us. And to, you know, kind of pick and choose where you want to do that help, it kind of negates the purpose of, you know, having a whole lot of 
faith in what they would do, what they're going to do, what they should do, or what have you. So we got to get better at that as a country, man, because it's not not a good thing for, you know, us to feel that way. But then again, you know, hasn't always been the greatest. That is true. And I was just wondering what you thought of the fact that uh, one of the papers up in your neck of the woods, uh, some folks are saying that they might have taken the easy way out because they decided to not endorse one, but two candidates. So the New York Times came out and said that they were endorsing both uh, Amy, and I'm always doing a horrible job of pronouncing her last name. Maybe you'll do a better job than I, and um, Elizabeth Warren. So they said those were the two that they were going to back. I think that they said that Elizabeth was one that they were going to back out of the more, uh, we'll call it the uh, progressive or left kind of extreme of the candidates that are still out there and in terms of the centrist <laughs> and people that are more centrally oriented they were going to endorse Amy so they were going to endorse those two versus trying to come out with like just one particular endorsement they did just say that you know at the end of it they made the best women uh, win out of that contest they did acknowledge some of the uh, flaws of both of those you know Amy Klubacher I guess is how it's pronounced is uh, definitely um, been accused of berating some of her staff members and there's some other things that are against her and everything. Of course, there are things against Elizabeth, including how much of her heritage is actually Native American or not. And some of the politics that she's back that some people may think is a little bit too far to the left and can't really be accomplished, particularly if she's going to be doing it with a uh, conservative legislator. Because, I mean, no matter who wins, they're still going to have to deal with the legislators that are in place now unless we wind up flipping those two, and that's going to be a whole lot of flipping. Not saying it can't be done, but that's the way that they went. So, I mean, we did have Corey drop out, and I think there's some others that might be dropping out eventually. And I think there's one more uh, debate coming up very shortly, if I remember correctly. But uh, they, they, the New York Times, went with the concept of endorsing these two ladies. And like I said, they did say some things about Bernie Sanders. I think they were concerned about Bernie's health and some of the things about uh, his campaign. They definitely had some issues with uh, Mayor Pete and with uh, Andre, Andrew Yang and with uh, Biden and some of the others that are in the race, even the newcomer in the race, uh, Mr. Bloomberg, even though they have endorsed him in the past when he ran for mayor. But in terms of being president, they definitely had some things that they were not as uh, up on. But I was reading their endorsement. And like I said, it was a very thorough endorsement when they gave both the good and the bad of the reasons that they went the way that they went. But I just don't know what this talk in the streets are up there in New York and New Jersey since they decided that they wanted to back two versus one. You know what? I haven't been paying attention to too much of that yet. It's still not time for me. You know, we we are in January. However, I I still feel that some people are going to drop off and then from there, you know, closer to May, June, we may have some uh, serious candidates for what, um, you know, what, what's about to happen with our country. So, you know, give it a little bit more time, brother, and, and then from, from there we'll see. We'll, we'll be able to actually, you know, make a, a better informed decision. I guess I would say it that way. And 
then we can kind of go forward and, and see what the plan of attack will be. Um, you know, in the beginning, it's a whole bunch of me too, and I'm going to do this. And, you know, it, it's just a lot. But like I said, we, we'll, 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 we'll see. <laughs> we're just gonna play it by ear and see what happens. It's interesting what they said yeah. at the beginning of their uh, of their article. What they said is American voters must choose between three sharply divergent visions of the future. The incumbent president Donald Trump is clear about where he is guiding the Republican Party: white nativism at home and American first unilateralism abroad, brazen corruption, escalating cultural wars, a judiciary stacked with ideologues and the veneration of a mythical past where the hierarchy in American society was defined and unchallenged. On the Democratic side, an essential debate is underway between two visions that may define the future of the party and perhaps the nation. Some in the party view President Trump as an aberration and believe that a return to a more sensible America is possible. Then there are those who believe that President Trump was the product of political and economic systems so rotten that they must be replaced. The Democratic primary contest is often portrayed as a tussle between moderates and progressives. To some extent, that's true. But when we spent significant time with the leading candidates, the similarities of their platforms on fundamental issues became striking. Nearly any of them would be the most progressive president in decades on issues like health care, the economy, and government's allocation of resources. Where they differ most significantly is not the what, but the how, and whether they believe the country's institutions and norms are up to the challenge of the moment. Many Democratic voters are concerned first and foremost about who can beat Mr. Trump, but with a crowded field and with traditional pollings in tatters, that calculation calls for a hefty dose of humility about anyone's ability to foretell what voters want. So they're basically saying that the Democratic Party is trying to figure out who will lead the country, but they were definitely planning to take it in a different direction than the direction we've been going in over the last uh Four years or so. So they definitely feel that uh, definitely whoever wins it will try to take it in a different direction and probably try to take it in a direction that will be a little bit more progressive and not the way that we're going right now. I did hear a doorbell, and I'm hoping to hear a whole lot of doorbells during the course of this evening. So I've talked to a couple of folks, and they said that they would be giving us a call during the course of what's going on. So we're going to hopefully hear a whole bunch of doorbells during the course of the evening. So we're going to bring one of them up very shortly. But uh, I did want to know what you thought really quickly about the fact that we have Kansas City against uh, San Francisco. Neither were teams that I know. I wasn't rooting for either one of those. I don't think you were. You were a Ravens fan. I was hoping my Vikings were going to do something. I do have a friend of my brother's who is a longtime 49ers fan, and I believe he still is. So he's probably very excited about the possibility of a 49ers winning the Super Bowl. Don't know if I have any friends or acquaintances in the Kansas City camp that I'm aware of, but uh, I'm sure if I do enough digging and surfing around, I might be able to find some, but definitely know of at least one or two that were on the San Francisco trail and we're hoping that they would win it, but it's going to be a battle because both of those have some excellent quarterbacks, some excellent offensive firepower, and their defenses aren't all that bad either. So, like I said, I thought Tennessee was going to have a good shot at doing something, but, you know, they just they came out of the gate fast, and uh, then they kind of petered out and Kansas City ran all over them after that. But that's what we're going to have in the Super Bowl is Kansas City against uh, – yeah, San Francisco against Kansas City. I mean, 
Kansas City against San Francisco. So that ought to be a good uh, Super Bowl. So we'll see how it plays out in the uh, game in two weeks when Super Bowl Sunday comes around. But that's who our uh, opponents are going to be. And I think we've got an all-star game coming up as well in the not-too-distant future because I did see that we're getting voting going on. I think LeBron is leading a lot of voting, as are some of those Clipper players. You know, I'm a big fan of Doc Rivers, having gone to school with him and everything. So a couple of his players look like they're going to be on the team. And so it might. when I looked at the West Coast team, it looked like it could be about half that team that plays on the same court. Because I think I saw about four or five players that were either Lakers and or Clippers. Well, as far as football, I'm going to be looking. Uh, I, I'm going to ride with the AFC, man. My team comes from the AFC. So let's see if Kansas City can pull us out and uh, give Andy Reid his uh, first Super Bowl uh, Vince Lombardi trophy. As far as basketball, I really flow right into uh, arena football after, you know, NFL. But this year the Arena Football League has, you know, is defunct now. So I'll be checking out the XFL and the New York Guardians to see how that league goes. And then from there, you know, we roll right around. We wait a little bit. Football is my thing, so, you know, we roll back into the preseason and, and hopefully, you know, next year will be a, a different outcome for my uh, Baltimore Ravens. Before I put on this commercial, man, I just want to give a shout-out to Platinum Productions. They did an outstanding job last night at the All-Stars of Hip Hop. I mean, you had the old-school artists, Melly Mel, you know, Kwame, Special Ed, Greg Nice. MC Light, Moni Love, uh, man, KRS-One, the God Rakim. You know, it was an awesome show last night, and I was proud to be uh, witness to that. Slick Rick and Dougie Fresh back on stage together. You know, it was real nice. It was real nice. Before you get to the commercial, and I definitely want to get to the guests and the commercial and everything, but before you get to that, I do have to give one other shout-out. Actually, two things I want to shout-out. One I meant to mention last week, and the other I want to give a shout-out to that I just saw recently. I was watching TV on cable, saw the Bounce Awards, or not the Bounce Awards, the Bounce Trump Awards. It's the Trump uh, Trumpet Awards. That's what it's called, because Wanda Sykes was teasing about the fact that she couldn't have any awards that had anything that had Trump in the title. But it's the Trumpet Awards, not the Trump Awards, but the Trumpet Awards, and among the performers, but the Trumpet Award was none other than Rhapsody. So Rhapsody definitely came out there, did her thing, and it was definitely uh, right. did a great job of, of hosting it. There were some great people that were honored. There was a uh, lady that was a uh, pioneer in the PR and things of that nature, a young lady out of that field. I cannot think of her name off the top of my head, but mm-hmm. I will try to find it and put it on our page. And there was a number of others that were honored, including Martin Lawrence and Cedric the Entertainer. So definitely some amazing okay. folks were honored. Andrew Young, speaking of Dr. King and his legacy, was one of those that was honored as well. But uh, definitely some very powerful people were honored. And like I said, I happened to get up there and look at the TV, and there was Rhapsody doing her thing on a national stage. So I know that you are part of a team that helped put Rhapsody out there. So I thought I would give yes, you a little shout-out about the fact that Rhapsody was doing her thing <laughs> on a national scene. And then the other thing that I thought, folks, was one of the funny moments that I meant to tell people about last week, we were getting so serious that we didn't get to some of the humor moments, was there was a young lady that apparently lost but then wound up winning. She lost in 
Jeopardy. I believe it was Jeopardy or one of those other game shows. The reason she lost is because somebody asked the question, what was Popeye's favorite food? She said chicken because she was thinking about the world-famous chain, the Popeye's chicken chain. Of course, they were looking for, as we all know, cartoons and things of that nature. They were looking for the answer (laughs) of spinach. Do not feel too bad for the lady. Do not feel too bad for the lady because because she said the wrong answer and because corporations are not stupid and they know a good PR stunt when they see one, they realize that even though she said the wrong answer, she's apparently a Popeye's fan, so they gave her a whole bunch. I forget exactly the amount, but it was a whole bunch of chicken. So she can have chicken for a whole long time because with the Popeye's chain – did come out there and honor her saying, look, you got the wrong answer, but we appreciate the fact that you love us as much as you do. So we're going to give you and your family this whole amount of lots and lots of chicken. So sometimes, you know, the wrong answer can lead to a victory. Depends on what you answer, I guess, huh? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, because I I don't remember Popeye saying, you know, I eat my chicken, you know, but hey, it, it, it worked for us, so that's that's a good thing. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. So we go we gonna get into you want both guests at the same time once we come back, or you want just one and then the other? Let me know. Uh, we'll come back when you come back, but I think we're gonna try to jump into. We'll do one at a time. We'll probably jump with the first one to call, which was the, the 984 one, but we would definitely get to the 7042, yeah. and there might be some other ones calling too, but we want to get into all of them because I think we might have as many as four or five before the course of this evening getting over, but definitely want to hear from all of our guests, but definitely drop the commercial, and then we'll jump in with 984. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's Straight Talk with Dana Mark. Wow. The moment my son saw a redwood tree. <laughs> Is the moment I knew that for him... You can't even see the top of that thing! Even the sky has no limit. There are some moments only the forest can inspire. Find yours at discovertheforest.org. Learn about forests near you and discover cool things to do when you go. Your moment is out there. Find it at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Straight Talk with Dana Mark. Call out 984, last four digits, 0982. You are on the line. Tell us who you are and where you're calling from. Uh, greetings. Um, I am Dr. Uh, Noni Davis. I'm calling from Durham, North Carolina. And um, I'm the owner and uh, director of St. Thea Academy, a private African-centered school here in Durham. Appreciate you, Dr. Noni, for giving us a call. Um, like I said, when I saw you at one of the events at Haytai, you were over there as part of the Kwanzaa celebration, and we talked about the fact that yes. we would love to have you on the air at some point to talk about what uh, St. Thea Academy is all about. We were actually, as you heard earlier, talking about some of the world's events and things of that nature. And, of course, this yes. is the uh, anniversary of uh I mean, this is the time that we honor Dr. King. I know that St. Cena yeah. Academy actually honors a lot of the people of our legacy, not just Dr. King, but uh, Malcolm yeah. X, uh, Marcus Garvey, Booker yeah. T. Washington, a lot of the great people that are part of our heritage. So if you would, yeah. tell us a little bit about what got you into birth, into Durham, what got you into starting this charter school, and a little bit about why you decided that uh, you really wanted to do this as an African-centered one. Because as far as I know, um, 
there are a few African-centered schools around the area. When I think of those kind of schools, I think of you definitely. I also think of, uh, even though it's a male school, I think of Black Nativity because I think that some of their focus is also a little bit African-centered as well. So if you would, tell us a little bit about what, uh, why you decided to come this way and uh, a little bit about the um, reason yeah. that you decided to start the school. Well, um, actually, I am uh, the child of Dermites. My, my grandparents lived here, um, actually owned um, a laundry and tailoring shop down in Haiti back in the 50s, um, the 40s and the 50s. And so um, my father was born and raised here. And so we were, um, my parents did mil- some military and um, my pa- when my dad got married and my mother, all of us ended up here in the area. Um, for me, um, everyone, I mean, not everyone, but so many of my family members were educators. So I re- was raised in a household with my mom as a teacher, my aunts were teachers. Uh, my, my father talked about how his grandmother taught them and um, at home before they entered school. So it teaching was just like a natural part of, you know, our daily conversation and daily interaction. So I guess it was just DNA for me. But um, also when I uh, got married and had my own children, I was very concerned about, you know, the quality of education. Uh, I also heard in many of those conversations with my aunts and my my mom that they were just totally discouraged with the, uh, the treatment of African-American children, the quality of the curriculum. And, in fact, I was – well, my, my parents attended UNC Chapel Hill, and I was in Chapel Hill City Schools. My parents removed us from Chapel Hill City Schools because of their uh, concern about the quality of education. Most people are trying to move – into those areas because they're like, these are the better schools. But my parents are very disgusted with what was going on in uh, the school system. Uh, the, you know, the uh, in-class, you know, the integration, but then you had the, uh, you know, the segregation through um, AG programs and, you know, our implementation of, you know, the, you know using test scores to eliminate who needed to go to, you know, uh, special needs or, or um, you know, classes where, you know, where the skill sets were up to par, they would go to those. And, and it ended up being along racial lines or along economic, you know, uh, class lines and stuff like that. So, you know, we came to Durham, and uh, like I said, after I had my own children, these same issues came to my mind, I said, well, let me see, what am I going to do, because I can't put my subject, I don't want to subject my own children to this, so I actually started as a homeschooling parent, and then after that, we're like, it kind of evolved, my parent, my mom noticed that I was getting a lot of things done that she was not able to teach or, or, or vote during her class, and she said, you know what, when I retire, I think we're going to go ahead and um, pursue her dream, which was to open up a private school. So we're not a charter school. We're actually a private school. And um, and so that's how we came we came about. My mom retired. We turned our houses into schools, and we have been operating now since 1996. Wow, so that's Thank a long you. time. So 96 to 2020, that's 24 years that the school has been yes. in business. 
And the scary thing yeah. is that as you were talking about this, and I also want to bring in um, Nadia, who's actually got a very interesting concept with her business that she does and everything. So I want to bring her in for at least a minute or two into our conversation. But uh, the interesting thing is that a lot of times our school board people or people that are running for school board are talking about the same kind of issues that you were dealing with when you decided to create this school. And thank you for correcting me right. about the type of school that it is and everything. Because yeah. I know that Alexandria Valadares, who is one of the people running for um, school board and others that have run for school board, even Eddie Davis, have talked about a lot of the inequalities in the uh, education system. I actually, exactly. when I'm not working at HATI, work for Measurement Incorporated, which is like one of our leading testing companies. Right. And even some of us that work for that company don't necessarily approve of all the methodology that exists within that. It's like a lot exactly. of other things that people go into those jobs because it helps pay the bills. I mean, you hate to say it that way, but right. it does help pay right. the bills, and that's why a lot of people wind up working those in those fields, even though they may not necessarily believe in all of the methodology themselves and everything. Yeah. But I can definitely relate to what you're talking about in terms of having educators as um, parents because my mom who has been involved in the nonprofit world for a number of years um, and is now retired but before she retired literally was a guidance counselor she was a guidance counselor right. in Zebulon when mm-hmm. I was a young child and my uh, I have an yeah. aunt, aunt Julie who was a medical librarian and is also retired um, she's out in um, was a medical librarian at Duke at a late aunt uh, who just passed away not that many years ago um, who was a um, principal and a teacher in between Jersey and right. Virginia and some other places. And then my uh, youngest aunt, aunt um, Vaughn, has been involved in teaching and still is doing some teaching, even though she's in that part of her life where she's trying to, like, maybe change careers and do a little bit more of a craft right. kind of job and everything versus being yeah. a teacher and taking care of her various kids and everything. But definitely I can relate to having teachers in the background. Um yeah. One of the reasons I, I definitely want to continue the conversation, but one of the reasons I wanted to bring in Nadia is Nadia is a young artist that I met. Um, I met her actually a couple of times, and she's out of I met her last time at the spoken word competition at Haiti. And one of the things that she's doing is she's putting these shirts together that feature our history. So they kind of like have um, right. an African image and the image of America. And she's been doing this, and she's a young lady doing this kind of business and everything. So Nadia, tell us a little bit about African-Americans are beautiful, because that's kind of like you started this um, not that long ago, because you were a fairly, I mean, you are a mom yourself, but you are a fairly recent graduate. You know, I think you and some of your friends were telling me that you got out like maybe about 10 or 11 years ago. So compared to me, that's fairly recent. (laughs) Hey, everybody. How are y'all doing tonight? All right. Doing, Doing good. Good, good, right. good. Um, yeah, so um, African American the Beautiful is exactly how you described it. It's basically um, incorporating incorporating the outline of Africa and America in every design. It's all original artwork, and um, yeah, I certainly just created it because I thought it was a good way to just highlight how we who we are as a people and just the beauty yeah. of us. That's why it's called African American the Beautiful. It's based off of the song America the Beautiful but just enhanced with African in it. Um and so I get a lot of great feedback um from the um art that I do and so that just tells me that people were feeling the same way that I do. So I'm just really honored that people are, you know, really taken by it and love it just as much as I do. And what decided? What made you decide that you wanted to go into this kind of uh, field? Because I mean, entrepreneurship is not an easy field, Nadia. And I imagine <laughs> that even Dr. Nodia can tell you, because being a 
that having a school is also a form of entrepreneurship. And I'm thinking that you probably encourage some of your students to also go into entrepreneurship since you've been around for a number yes. of years. I'm thinking some of your students have also gone on and started their own lines or different other kinds of businesses. Exactly. Of course. Yeah, definitely. And the same thing for me, I actually um, left an education position as well. So we're all kind of educators in the mix. Um, but um, I did, I left my job in December as an alternative learning coordinator um, as a teacher in Wake County and trying to do this full time as a mom and a businesswoman is super tough, but I think I'm more motivated to kind of create the life that I would like to live as opposed to, you know, spending 10 or 15 years not doing something that I feel like I'm called to do or at least not rising to my fullest potential. So that was my decision. Mm -hmm. I first started kind of dabbling into entrepreneurship maybe about six years ago. I actually had um, a desire to have a thrift store, so I ended up getting a daycare bus, taking out all the seats, and I used to travel around to events, and um, and I created a little mobile boutique. So this isn't my first rodeo. I'm still kind of um, new to the whole entrepreneur aspect, but I really think that black businesses are so wide open. I feel like anybody who can start a black business do start a black business, and I'm so uh, elated that she's starting a school because we need so many more um, schools for our people, for our kids. So. Um, yeah. That's kind of with me, you know, and I just really took a heart for it, and I just love entrepreneurship because you can basically make it whatever you want, and then you can also teach others about it as well. So that's what I really like about it. No yeah. doubt about that. And one of the things I'm curious to hear from you, one thing I did want to let you know that uh, Dean, my co-host, his wife, Anna, has her own um, entrepreneurship business, and he can tell you about that during the course of the show. But then he, she, along with two of her friends, also have three Harlem sisters. So they've got various businesses that they do out of, like, the New York, New Jersey wow. area where Dean is based out of. So they've definitely been keeping track of doing some entrepreneurship and definitely being strong African-American women that are doing this kind of uh, business on a regular basis. Of course, as we said mm -hmm. at the beginning, you know, this is the time of, of – people remembering the legacy of Dr. King and things of that nature. Um, some of us might, you know, I was probably a kid myself when Dr. King was, um, no, probably I was a kid when Dr. King was assassinated. Some of you weren't even born when Dr. King was uh, around and everything. But just to, out of curiosity, what was your thoughts of the legacy of Dr. King and what Dr. King means to you as both an educator and a business owner? Well, I definitely feel. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. She, you can go ahead. You can answer first. Yes, I didn't. Yeah, go ahead, Doctor. Go, go ahead. I was referencing both of you, but we'll defer to Doctor Noni first, and then we'll come to Nadia. Oh, okay. Okay. Sorry, I wasn't sure. Okay. Well, for me, I feel like what I teach my children is is that we have to really evaluate exactly reevaluate exactly what we were trying to achieve as a people during this time. Mm -hmm. And um I so I I I was born in sixty one. So I remember the conversations in my home and the conversations with my grandparents. And so my people were kind of on the line with this. They were they uh, they wanted to have schools where we had access to resources and access to um a, a better quality education, but there was also a, a lot of concern about B 
being in an integrated environment where our children were now placing their bodies into spaces where there were very negative attitudes and stereotypes about them. And so I remember those conversations, and I remember my mom, you know, there was a lot of quite a bit of alarm about it. So, you know, they weren't like 100% integration, um, which is probably why I have this African Center School. But, and, and I think that we felt like we were compromising our humanity. What is really integration? When I think of what integration should be, it should be a classroom where you go in, the teacher broaches a subject, she puts uh, English, or she puts science on the board, because I'm a, I teach the science over here. So she puts chemistry on the board. Okay, so that means that I should, you know, when we start talking about the Bohr method or or um, or Bose-Einstein or in the, or we start talking about um, African American, I mean, scientists, we should have Chappelle up there. We should have um, um, Ernest Everett Just up there. We should have, uh, um, you know, Native American chemistry or ideas of what you know how they practice chemistry in the development of medicines and development of. Um, um, you know, their agricultural practices. What do they do with chemistry? How do they apply chemistry in ancient Africa? How do they apply chemistry in Europe? How did the Japanese do it? How did the Hispanic people do it? And so when you are in that classroom, true integration is when everybody's uh, culture is considered. That is not what happens. And so what has been the consequence of it? So I'm not saying we have not made any gains from integration, but I think that the African-American community needs to, to not only reevaluate it, but we need to take, um, we need to take strides to, make, to correct it. What can we do to fix this problem? We, have, we know that the curriculum is not reflective of our children. We know that you have multi, multiple learning styles, and so we have this testing that does not reflect uh, or does not consider the multiple learning, the ways that people, the children learn. And so we are continuously, uh, this thing is strategy, you know, um, um, you know, I'm trying to think what is the word. Um, well, it's stratifying our community, and only a few people are actually able to successfully move through this. And in the African community, the traditional African community, it was Ubuntu. The whole community was measured by the quality of life for everybody. That is not the way this system is operating. So what can we do to bring, to fuse in our worldview into the school system? And at this point, I could not sacrifice my children. My my oldest is now 33, and my youngest is 18. I could not sacrifice them <laughs> for that space, you know, for people to figure that out. And um, and so, but I th- that's what I think of with Dr. King. I'm like, do we really know what he what his expectations were? And has has that did we let him down by not keeping, you know? staying focused on what his vision was for us as a community. And did we kind of allow other people to influence it and take it down a road that we now maybe we shouldn't have gone down or maybe we shouldn't have surrendered so easily. And I know that's well, controversial. No, that's that, controversial, that, but that's where I stand. No, and I think that that's a very valid point and a very legitimate point. Um, Nadia, what are some of your reflections 
on Dr. King. And actually, I want to come to something else that might be controversial as well, but we like controversy on Straight Talk. So, uh, <laughs> Nadia, what, are some of, what are some of your views on Dr. King and things of that nature? Um, I definitely think that we need to be just like him in the sense of walking in our greatness. Um, I think that, you know, whether it's parenting, like parenting our children better, uh, taking care of our neighborhoods better, owning more homes, walking in our gifts and talents, I think that is the key to, you know, the the black legacy to a degree is just, you know, everybody kind of stepping in their own. And the more we step in black excellence of who we already know we are, we won't have to be so dependable on people who are not like us. Like, there's no reason that we don't have black towns, black grocery stores, black toy stores, black dry cleaners, black daycares, all in the same vicinity where everybody knows everybody, where everybody's you know, has their homes built and they have their own sector you know, their own part of the country, even though that can be controversial as well because you always have your naysayers who are going to say, well, you know, they'll just destroy that or that'll end up happening there. But it doesn't stop us from trying and, um, you know, being strengthened in our community. And I think that's what we're really, really, really lacking. We should already have, um, you know, an idea of what we want to do with our seniors. We should already take care of our affordable housing for our for our own people. We don't have to look to somebody else to do that. And I think the moment that every single black person in America lives up to their full potential, then yes, you're right. Like Dr. Noni will have a school. You guys will have a radio station. I can have a clothing line. But all of those things can expand to other things as well. And, I, and then when you have the midst of that, you also have your children and your children's children, right? So it's just one of those things that I think we have to rewrite the book, um, and I think what he was fighting for, of course, was us being judged by our character, um, but we know that that is very, uh, it, it's flawed, you know, in the sense of we still not judged by our character. So I think that people go between the integration and the segregation and feeling like, you know, to a sense, we kind of need to be with our people so that we can grow in our black power and just kind of be um, independent of everybody else. And I, I personally kind of feel like that's where we're kind of going because we're being pushed to go that place. Um, And um, I feel like once we realize the brilliance that we are and, you know, like every other culture, um, I think we'll be absolutely fine. But that's another reason why I created the brand is because it is to highlight who we are. We don't have to be like anybody else. Yeah, Yeah, because it's interesting you bring that up because you actually bring up two points that I wanted to hear uh, y'all elaborate a little bit more on. But you talk about the need to have these kind of communities, and we've had these kind of communities. I mean, right there in Haytai was the historical Haytai district, of mm-hmm. course, we've had, uh, which was Black Wall Street. Mm-hmm. There was a Black Wall Street in Tulsa. There were Black mm-hmm. Wall Streets around the country. And we do have entrepreneurs yeah. that come around, and they're part of, like, the new Black Wall Street and things of that nature. And I know mm-hmm. that when I've talked to some of them, they sometimes feel that they can't that they can develop these black businesses, but they can't necessarily have the black business within the black neighborhood. I'm not saying all of them, but I have had this conversation where some of them feel that you, we will never be able to recreate another black Wall Street. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that, because I think that we can create a black mm-hmm. Wall Street that you just described, where it's in our community and it's a, a lot of the different kind of things, whether that's a yeah. film house, whether that's a store, whether that's uh, where we already have the funeral home, or whether right. that's the banks, or what, whether that's the different other kind of businesses. And then the other part that I'm curious to hear with y'all thoughts on is that definitely we are getting pushback. Definitely when Obama was elected, he was president for two terms. A lot of people think, as we just alluded to when I was talking about the endorsement that um, the Times, the New York Times gave, 
is the reason we got Trump is that it was a pushback from some of our um, European brethren in terms of like mm-hmm. the fact that a black man had been elected, so they wanted to go the opposite extreme and elect somebody that's right. definitely. Some people would say conservative, right. ultra conservative. Some people would just be like me and Dean and say that he's crazy. But that's just our opinion. Right. You know, I just want to answer real quick. I think I think when you get to why such and such is doing what and whoever is doing whatever, you lose focus on what you're supposed to be doing. And not that those things aren't a factor, but I do believe, like you know, we all know y'all were talking sports earlier. I seldomly do I think that people actually worry about what the team is doing. If the if their team is off, then that's what I need to be focused on. If they ended up end up beating us later, then maybe we need to watch tape. Like I heard somebody talk about that before, but that's after the fact. I think while we're in the midst of it, our team needs to worry about our team. And I just think that we need to make sure that we're rising to our best potential. Like if you have black millionaires, those black millionaires need to be investing in black businesses so that those people can rise up too so we can kind of multiply. And I just kind of feel like there is possibility for a black Wall Street. There is possibility for um, black neighborhoods. But I think we have to think a little, I won't necessarily say smarter, saying that it's not smart, but I think that we have to be a little bit more on guard. Just like in California, you know, they have a Beverly Hills, which is a gated community, and they have their own police and they have their own people. I feel like black communities almost should be uh, similar just because we've already been down that before where we have people who get enraged or get whatever. But I just feel like we need to take more control over what's ours. And I just feel like we can't always be so naive in a sense of saying, like, oh, yeah, join us, welcome, you know, and super inclusive. I think we'll be inclusive when there is no harm. But I think for the most part we've been damaged, and that's something that white America has to figure out. You know, if we're still having the debate about reparations, then we're not there. We don't need to have that conversation, right, because it's no debate. It it is what it is. So until that time, I think we do need to be a little more guarded about how we decide to go about our businesses, how we decide to go about our neighborhoods. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be that it has to be on show that we own this and own that and do this. We can own it just like, you know, Tyler Perry. He can own it. They still got to do their movies there. But it doesn't have to be anything that, you know what I'm saying, that we have to, you know, we know that they, you you know that in the past it was because of jealous rage or because they just don't want us to have. And I just feel like not that we need to tread softly, but we just tread more silently bosses or tread within our own community. We know what's going on. Because even when you think about the Asian community, the Indian community, we don't know the ins and outs of everything. We don't know how they get what, you know, to the, you know, and I think that's okay because I think it's an exclusiveness because it's in their culture. And I think we have to be that way. We don't have to try to prove ourselves or win anybody over. Mm -hmm. I just think we have to kind of function that way instead as opposed to, oh, yeah, we trust everybody. And, oh, yeah, they're really sorry now so we can bring them in. I feel like we should have our own neighborhoods, our own towns, our own communities where we have our own police officers, we have our own mayors. What what goes on, it's like a different sector or a different state, if you will. We go by different yeah. laws. We go by different things. It's not run the same way. And I feel like if it is your calling to stay in America, because there are some people that are like, I'm going to Africa, I'm going to Bermuda, I'm going, you know, they're going other places. They don't have to be here. But I feel like if you feel like you're meant to stay in America and fight the good fight and do that, I think you just can't be worried about what the other team is doing and you got to be ready to be down for anything. Sorry, that was a little long-winded. 
No, I really agree with that in so many levels. And this is the reason why I said, you know, what was actually Dr. King's vision? We, I think we lost our way. We, it was not for us to sacrifice ourselves and lose our own identity. When my parents mm-hmm. were growing up, they remember having African-centered, you know, not, it wasn't necessarily African-centered, but my dad would learn Langston Hughes. My dad learned about Frederick Douglass. My dad learned about W.E.B. Boys, and they knew about Booker T. Washington. It was not part of the curriculum, but it was taught. So now you're in a classroom with teachers who don't know who about Frederick Douglass, who don't know about your, your, uh, your African scientists and African-American scientists. They don't know about your African-American lawyers. They don't know about your literature. And so, and if they give you something, they're like, oh, well, look, we're going to give you a courtesy. We're going to give you this one little drop here for you to have. And so what we've done is we've diminished the value of our own community. Mm-hmm, and so that's mm-hmm. the reason why you have people thinking they don't want to come and move into our community because the people who, they may, they may know who they are, but our own children don't know who they are. You know, there was, mm-hmm. there was a sense of pride in our community. But when you have teachers who don't know who you are, they don't know the leg. All they know is that you were a slave. How can they infuse that sense of pride in you and that sense of purpose in you, which is what kept these black communities thriving in spite of Jim Crow? They, they were thriving because people were teaching their own children. They had their own doctors. They had their own lawyers, and they were continuously reaffirming each other. When we had integration, now you are no longer getting this reaffirmation of who you are. And so, right. you know, and so I, 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 I think that we do, we have to revisit. If you're going to put your child in a public school, what does that mean as a black parent? You got to go in there with your own book, or you got to be at home doing your job, making sure your children know who they are from Africa to America. If you're not doing what, that, you're, you're, sur- you're surrendering your child to this space. Because one of the things that is, one of the things that has surprised me, and I, one of my complaints that I have even with some of my fellow media folks, and it's one of the things that we fight regularly and try to bring more awareness of, even on this program right here, is that sometimes our own power structures, like you mentioned earlier, uh, one of you did about the black millionaires, and a lot of times it was you, Nadia. They don't do a mm-hmm. job of supporting our own communities and things of that nature. But I would even argue that mm-hmm. our own media doesn't do a good job of that. I mean, we've got exactly. black newspapers throughout the country and everything. We've got black scientists that are doing great works that are some are working for major corporations. They might be working either on their own or working for like a Cree or a Glaxo um, or something like that. But I don't know the last time that I picked up a copy of one of our black papers, whether it's Raleigh, Durham. Wilmington, D.C., whatever, and actually saw a feature article on these scientists. I know they exist because I got friends that are in those science fields, so I know that they exist, but I don't know the last time that our own media went out there and, just, and tried exactly. to find them, because I'm sure that they have, have fascinating stories that they would here. love to tell. I have not been interviewed at St. Thea by, uh, um, by black media, and they know wow. of my existence. I have not had Durham Committee of the School, I mean, of the, the Durham a committee of affairs of black people come and ask me what do I need. So we're not even so there's this thing about us even supporting our own institutions. Like you said, we've got we've got institutions right here, we've got doctors right here, we've got lawyers right here. 
that we do not know about, and we're not celebrating what they are doing. Because, and and it's and you, know, what can you say? You know, it's, what do you I, want? I to do say? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I do think that we have to um, go about our people differently. I think we have to navigate and move differently. Um, me and my husband actually attempted yes. to buy a house off of um, Fayetteville Street, um, trying to go back to the neighborhood, be closer to the central, um, maybe even open a nice business out there. But we were outbid by cash buyers, right? Um, right. So, And we were going through a traditional loan. Um, but when we were even thinking about buying um, off of Fayetteville Street a home, we were recruiting um, other people that were just like us, right? So I think in the sense of black people sticking together, you should already maybe have in mind who you're contacting and reach out to. If you have all exactly. these you know, black people with bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, doctorates, whatever, it's like, why don't we come together and be neighbors? Why don't we come together and buy the block? Why don't we come together exactly. and be within um, exactly. the neighborhood together and uplift the homes? And, yeah, I feel like it's going to be it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard it is. because it hasn't it is. been done before. But I feel like that's in the sense of us sticking together. I don't think we're necessarily looking for all black people to be on board because they're not, you know, but you yeah. look for like-minded exactly. people to be on board. Yeah. If you're educated, not even that if you're educated, because there's some brilliant people who don't have an education, but exactly. if you're on the same page, if you're on the same agreement level, I think that's where you start with doing something great and kind of sticking together in that sense. Like even if it was, yes. um, again, with businesses, it's like, okay, well, why don't like-minded businesses, maybe we need to be in a strip mall together. Maybe it does need to be a hair salon. It needs to be a gift shop. It needs to be a grocery store. And we all go after the same strip mall and start to do it. So then we're not just like a speck in a sea of everybody else, but maybe make it more strategically. Um, But I do believe that we're too busy trying to prove stuff to other cultures and other people um, that we got it and we're on the same level as them, and we just need to stop. We don't have anything to prove to anybody. We need to prove it to ourselves. And I think that that is where we kind of mess up with moving out of the neighborhood, and now they're gentrifying our neighborhood, and we can't do anything about it in a sense because we're behind, right? So it's just one of those things that I think that we have to stop being late to the game and we need to start thinking a little smarter. And when you have the means of being able to do something, then do it just because, you know, it's starting out as a clothing line, but hopefully it won't stay a clothing line. Hopefully it can turn into a grocery store. Hopefully it can turn into a laundromat or whatever the case may be or an apartment building. But I think everybody needs to be on that tip. You know, imagine where we would be, you know, even just in our black buying power. You know, we know that that's like, what, $1.1 trillion. Out of all each dollar that's spent in that $1.1 trillion, only $0.02 cents comes back to the black community, over the black business. Why is that? And I do think that there are some reasons for that. I don't think that everybody in the black community and the black business community is perfect. I think we do need kind of a revamp on our businesses because I do think that's where the stigma came from is it hasn't been consistent. So I feel like if we can get consistency, if we can do better, um, I feel like we should be able to be supported. Your school should be able to be reported on. The podcast should be able to be reported on. But I think we have to get on the same page, and I just don't think we're quite there. Yeah, after 23 years, we're like, you know what, we're going to, we have who we need to have. 
And you do, and that's exact. I've gone through all of that. What you're saying, and and what you're mm-hmm. saying, and the thing is, I think we have to come up like, like you said, with a strategy. And I, mm-hmm. I was listening to a friend uh, the other day talking about, you know, people were saying, "Wow, Carrie has become a little India," and he was, and his response to them was, "Yeah, they planned that forty years ago, or oh, yeah. twenty years ago." They decided that Carrie was going to be the hub, and they created a spiritual space. They they created their temple there, and then it became a right. space of attraction. And so we mm-hmm. need to do the same, figure out the same kind of thing here. What do we create that would be an attraction? And, and Derm at it, because everybody came mm-hmm. from other places to Derm mm-hmm. to build this like Wall Street. So we need to mm-hmm. go back and 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 I because I agree with what you're saying. We need to find a way because I'm in a black community. I'm in a community that was black from 1973 or seven, all through my childhood. Right. And now I have gentrification. I have white people mm-hmm. who have moved into my city and we're like and we're running up and down the street and they're jogging and they have their dogs. And my mom is about mm-hmm. to lose her mind. Store. So she's like, mm-hmm. when did they get in? And so, mm-hmm. but you're right. Where was Agency to to kind. Of, I mean, where was our restrictive covenant? Like you were saying about mm-hmm. gated communities that said you can't move in this community unless you achieve these certain qualities. You know, we don't have mm-hmm. one. So anybody mm-hmm. moving. So mm-hmm. um, you know, we need to do. You know, we it, we've got to find, be very strategic in what we do, and we've been very strategic with Saint Cyr. You know. Um, Get you can go out here and get a whole lot of grant money, and but then if I get the grant money, people are gonna want anybody can come, and anybody can't come. I'm I'm not mm-hmm. open to everyone. So if this no, is I think I think that that's. Yeah, and I think that's something that the black community wrestles with. I think we're afraid yeah. to tell some people no, and I think you do have to tell some people no, even our people, if they're not on the same page as us. If they're not on the same page, if they don't want the same goals, if they don't want the same um, things that we're fighting so hard for, we can't let anybody just in there and just, you know, shoot it all the way down or, you know, bring no. it down to ruins. And I just feel like, you know, it's one of those things like you have a family business and Cousin Joe, who you know ain't got himself together, is in there stealing money. And it's just like Cousin Joe can't be a part of this business because we have some, we have things to do. And I think that that is okay. I think any family has that. And as a, as a black community, as an African-American family, you have to be with like-minded people until they jump on board. You know, when they jump on board or when they're on the same tip, no problem. But until then... We have to get like-minded African-Americans in the same way, in the same place, who are, um, you know, committed to quality and committed to seeing a change and move forward from there. But I think that's the solution. I think we'll have to kind of start small. I think it'll take, you know, years and years and years. But I think, like I said, if if everybody or some people or a few just just walk in their gifts even at that um, or be able to um, sow a seed into somebody else, um, once they made it or, you know, even have a little bit, I think that that would be great. But um, I just feel like our mentality just has to kind of change and move forward towards that. Right. And uh, uh, Dr. Noni, how many uh, students are there currently? I know that when y'all do the presentation over at Paychat, uh, it's usually hundreds of people that are there in the audience, but I know that that's yeah. not all the students. It's, friends, it's parents and family and friends of that nature. So how many students are there actually at 
the Academy, and what are the grades at the Academy? I know that I want to say it covers all the grades, but if you'll just let our yes. listeners know what grades you cover and how many students you're actually teaching yes. as you're now celebrating your right. 24th anniversary. Yes, we have uh, 43 students. Um, we have we start with age three, and we go all the way through high school. And last year, you know, we were very fortunate. I had five high school graduates. Um, two of them were one was 18, an 18 year old boy who's at um, who went on to Durham Tech. I had a 17 year old boy. I had two 16 year old girls who have gone on to school at uh, matriculated to college, and then I had a 15 year old who has gone on to college. So I had five students graduate. Um, some of them, the, the one who was 15, had been with me for four, well, for three years, I think. And so, um, but we started age three. We teach every area of the curriculum. We teach the math, the science, the English, the foreign language, art, theater, art. Um, I'm trying to think of what else do we do. We have physical education. And we do a rights of, pro- rights of passage program every third fr- or every second Friday, maybe every third every third Friday. And so we've created a space with, Afri- like I said, it's African-centered, so every part of the curriculum is focused on uh, uh, learning styles that are best suited for African-American children, curriculum that is uh, empowers them for learning, and um uh, and we have had a lot of success. The average of graduate from here is about 16 or 17 years old. I've had eight or nine children who graduated valedictorian or salutatorian from their public high schools. I have several children who graduated in the top 10% of their classes um, and gone on to college. And, you know, but it's all because we created a, a, a very structured, academically challenging, but nurturing environment, you know, it's nurturing and, and it's reaffirming who they are and the greatness of their people. And then who are you and what is your purpose and what are you supposed to do in, in the community to make you okay. the community better for you? So we practice the Kwanzaa principle, you know, so it's a lot of affirmation of, of our children. And, um, and because of that, they know they can – they know what black people have done. And so there, you know, there's a less tendency to be foolish because we don't tolerate it for one thing, but also you know why you shouldn't be doing that, you know. You know who you are. You know what the expectation is from your family. And they cover all social. I've got GEDs to PhDs over here. So the whole community is represented. Yeah. Wow, that's a great thing. That's a great thing. I definitely yeah. want to continue the conversation. We still got a little bit of about another less than an hour to go, but I've got another entrepreneur that I want to bring on. But before we bring them on, I did want um, Dean to send me a text about the way that his uh, wife's business was going. So we always try to keep ourselves correct in going to the information. So, Dean, if you would explain to the listeners which direction she's going in and things of that nature, and then we'll bring in Desmond, because Desmond's got a very fascinating business that I think the ladies will be interested in as well. But if you'll just explain a little bit about what you were explaining on the text as to the direction that she is heading in now. We don't have to get into the details as to what happened with the other business, but what direction she's going in now. <laughs> um, right now, she's focusing on uh, exclusive events, and it's an event planning company. She also does um, designs for, like, she creates things. So, beaded jewelry, 
the little decorations that you hang, like the wreaths that you put on the door. She makes little designs out of different fabrics and materials. And um, she's focusing on that, you know, hopefully in a couple of months or so, looking for a, a spot to have a venue to um, host events, you know, for banquets and parties and what have you. So looking looking more so at that, focusing in this Jersey area where we're in. You know, so that, that's what her uh, focus is on, and it's called Exclusive Events. Sounds good. If you would, bring in Desmond, because I did want to, we might do want to drop in a minute, but I did want to bring in Desmond to the conversation because I wanted to tell folks who he is. Uh, Desmond, glad that you were able to call in and everything. I know there was a little bit of confusion, and I apologize for that in terms of the um, timing and things of that nature, but I am glad that you're able to join the conversation. We've got Dr. Noni Davis, who's the founder of St. Thea Academy, which is a uh, school here in uh, Durham that centers on African-focused uh, kind of education and things of that nature. And then we've got Nadia, who runs African Americans Are Beautiful, which is a, basically, I guess you would consider it like a fashion line, but it's because the fact of mm-hmm. us being proud people and things of that nature. Desmond, I was really interested when I found out about your business, because you have found out that, you know, a lot of times people will be out and about doing business and they need to charge their battery or their phone, and we're not always convenient to do that. So you came up with a portable charger effort. So if you tell people a little bit about that, because like I said, the, you did both Riot and Innovate Derm. I think you did both of those, which are kind of like some business opportunities that people that are founding businesses get to come to these things, make a pitch, and things of that nature. I think you won a couple of those pitches. It might have been Black Wall Street or one of the other ones. But tell us a little bit about how you came about this wonderful business with your business partners. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, thank you for having me on um, tonight. I definitely was listening to some of the conversation, and I'm already encouraged as, like, an African-American entrepreneur, you know, just to kind of go go a little bit harder just because we have this so important ecosystem of people doing some really cool things. But um, mm-hmm. um, in essence, um, I, you know, have always been, like, um, I guess an international econ nerd, and so I was fortunate to have the ability to get into an MBA program a few years ago. And I was actually studying in China for two years. And during that time, you know, China is very um, advanced when you talk about technology and, like, initiatives that they have. So I really just immersed myself in the culture, um, built a lot of what they call is guanxi, and just, like, which, within your network. And so saw some different, um, you know, just kind of, advanced technology concepts that really worked, um, whether it be like artificial intelligence. Uh, for us, it was the sharing economy. Um, and in essence, um, it, it came from just really being, which would, is the end user um, as far as like, again, being out and about, being inconvenient. Um, you think about how important your cell phone is. It's what connects you to, you know, the people that matter most, things that matter most, work, um, for some of us, social media, you know, just whatever it is. And um, when you have that disconnection, there's this feeling, um, it's called low battery anxiety, right? It's like, oh, man, like, what am I going to do? What if somebody texts me? So what if, you know, my wife calls me? You know, what if I'm not able to send this email? What if it's late at night and I can't call this Uber or whatever the case? So in essence, we were tired of fighting that fight and really wanted to challenge the narrative of, you know, being on like being portable and being able to move around while charge our phone and so one of the things that we saw is like a lot of people were either 
you know, carrying around a standard charger where they had to hover over an outlet, where they had to, um, you know, be confined in one area to charge their cell phone, or they were, like, doing without, right? They were like, hey, man, I'll just have a dead battery or whatever the case may be. So what we pretty much, um, you know, kind of came up with was an on-demand rental platform for portable batteries. And the way it works is we have kiosk machines um, that are in your, you know, event centers, so your convention centers, um, arenas, stadiums. And then we even have a model that we place into uh, bars and restaurants. Um, And the way it works is individuals download our application, and then they're able to find the kiosk machines in a particular city. So if it's downtown Charlotte, if it's downtown Durham, whatever the case, you'll be able to find the kiosk machine, walk to that location, scan a QR code, you'd, of course, create an account just like you would um, like an Uber account or like an Airbnb or something like that. Um, And it's similar to the bird scooter concept that you may see in particular cities. I think they have that in Durham. Um, And a lot of all these, you know, these buzzing cities around the nation. And the concept is that you can pretty much pay to rent a portable battery to charge your cell phone. And these batteries are compatible with iPhone, Android, literally any cell phone on the market right now. You plug up your phone and then now you have autonomy to keep it as long as you want, right? And so you can stay in that location, you can stay in that venue, or you can go to the next venue, right? If you were going from one bar to another, you can do that. If you were going from one convention center side to the next convention center side, you could do that. And then once you're finished, you use the application again, find a kiosk machine, and just return the battery. So that's kind of the concept of battery exchange and what we've come up with over the last year and a half. And it's been phenomenal. We've had a couple thousand users, and now we're actually going into the uh, convention center space. So we're actually going to be seeing more usage, which is really, really good. Wow. And uh, what made you decide to become an entrepreneur? Was it something that you were already into with your family entrepreneurs or this is just something that you kind of like saw the need for because i know when i was reading about it you had the one of the stories i read i believe was that you had like an incident yourself where you kept were kind of like in a jam and didn't see what you needed so that's when you figured that you needed to create this platform yeah yeah so i'm like third generation entrepreneur right so like my grandma my grandpa was like entrepreneurs, not by choice, right? They had to like figure it out. My dad, my granddad had got laid off from his job that he was at for a a lot of years. So he like, he figured out a concept on providing a solution for community, which in essence would provide, you know, value and like capital for his family as well. And my dad was an entrepreneur. So I think I've always had the exposure to entrepreneurship and I always like the mentality of, you know, building something that could, in essence, impact the lives of so many people. Um, and it just depends what it is. It doesn't matter what it is, but it's going to impact individuals and finding a solution for that. And so I think with that exposure, I always yearned entrepreneurship. Like, even growing up, I always, you know, dabbled into just different companies. Even when I was working, like, right out of undergrad, I graduated from Winston-Salem State. I started working in corporate but I always had that longing of like, man, this is not my true calling. I feel like there was more that I wanted to give as far as to the world. There's more that I wanted to give of myself. And so, you know, I kind of took that chance and, um, you know, went out to China and, you know, said I was going to figure it out. 
Um, but it wasn't until, and just going back to the story that you're talking about, it was myself and my co-founder. We were actually out one evening with our friends and, you know, our friends, um, you know, we we're, were, we were out all day and, you know, my uh, co-founder, his cell phone was dead. Mine's is at 5%. We didn't have a charger on us. And, you know, our friends wanted to like go to another location and we were just like, you know what, we can't. Cause like our cell phone is either dead or like dying. And like, I, I don't want to be, you know, I want that feeling like on me like all night. And so like, we just continue to challenge that narrative of like, why isn't there a solution for us to kind of move around? And we saw some things that worked in the space, even like in like competitors and stuff like that. But we felt like we could, you know, build a more efficient, and a better product. So in essence, you know, fast forward and having connections to some manufacturers um, out in the East, we're able to build and develop what we have now. But it was definitely uh, my parents and my grandparents' uh, influence as far as, like, taking that chance in the whole entrepreneurship game. Definitely. Now, the two ladies earlier before you got on the call, I was asking them what Dr. King's legacy meant to them in terms of their different Mm -hmm. fields of dairy. And I was wondering what Dr. King's legacy meant to you and also how you kind of carry his legacy on to the work that you do now. Yeah, totally. I mean, first and foremost, uh, Dr. King is an alpha man, and I am as well. Um, so, you know, we relate in that accord. Um, and then just like, I, I think as I look back at Dr. King and just like, you know, individuals in his time and individuals that just came before me and the sacrifices they made for me to even have the opportunities I have, you know, like, that's why I go so hard. Like, I don't go hard just, you know, I mean, I want to build a legacy for my family, but it's because you know, individuals before me fought so hard just to provide these opportunities for me. So for them, I mean, it's a sense of motivation. Um, It's a sense of, you know, especially in the space that I'm in, there's not a lot of African-Americans and and funding and capital doesn't even matriculate to us. Um, I think it's the the stat is like under like 2% that actually goes to like, you know, African-American founders, let alone women african-american founders and so for me to continue to push that ordeal that we are just as good as the you know ivy league um you know individual that's getting capital just because of where he came from or the connections that he had so i think some of the ways that i try to oh, i'm sorry some of the oh so, some of the ways i try to reinvent that is um you know, just recently we were able to raise like $95,000 from our community and our network of individuals that a lot of times just look like us. Um, and it was from the point of going to uh, VCs and investment groups and them saying like, hey, you're too early or this, that, and the other, or I just didn't have the right connections or whatever it was, but I knew I had a concept that could, you know, be high growth, that could scale across the nation. And so what I did was, I built up this following on social media, and then I built up a support system of individuals, again, that looked like me from my church, from, you know, my university, from my fraternity, that just believed in me as an individual and as an entrepreneur that now funded and became investors in my company where we raised, again, $90,000 in like six weeks. And so, like, again, just going back to that Dr. King narrative as far as, like, even though they may cut off all your streams of, like, you know, getting to that next step. But, like, how can you be resourceful 
and again use your network in order to kind of move forward. So I think those are like some of the motivating motivating things that Dr. King has done for me, to be honest. Yeah, and I can definitely see where that would go, and how that can definitely be something that would impact you and impact others that are listening and things of that nature. What advice do you give to other entrepreneurs? Like I said, I've met you at the different conferences and everything, so I know that sometimes people come to you that are entrepreneurs themselves. So what advice do you give to other young entrepreneurs? Because you're a relatively young entrepreneur. If you want to state your age, you can, but you don't have to. But I know that you're a relatively young entrepreneur. Yeah, I mean, it depends on what uh, angle you're looking at it at, right? Because, like, in the tech space, it's seen as, like, you know, early 20s, fresh out of college, like, that's the young and buzzing entrepreneur. But, you know, I do have some corporate experience in, like, that whole international deal. But I did just celebrate my birthday on uh, Friday, this past Friday. So I just turned 30. Um, so I guess that's, you know, still relatively okay. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, thank you. It was amazing. I feel really good about 30. <laughs> but um, but um, I, I think I just, you know, I think some of the things that I struggled with earlier on, was feeling like I needed to have so much, um, you know, in order to move forward. But, you know, like a lot of times we have so much already that we can use and we can already be resourceful. So I would just like tell anybody to be resourceful, believe in yourself, and just keep pushing. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of times I've seen founders or entrepreneurs stop right before they were about to have that big break, and it's just because they stopped believing in themselves. And so, like, you know, you just got to have faith, you know, in a lot of, in a lot of my, um, you know, upbringing is spiritually led. So I think I'm a bit different than the average individual. But if you do have that core essence that tells you that God is a, a, a part of your life, I think you use that. And, you know, I feel okay. like our lives are already, you know, um, aligned. It's just like doing the right things that, you know, align with whatever that path is. So that's kind of what I would tell them. And uh, Dr. Um, Dr. Noni, um, I know for a fact, because seeing you around and everything, that that spiritual connection is also very important to the way that you direct St. Sia Academy, because you definitely are oh, yeah. tied to the motherland, but you also make it sure that people understand the spiritual aspect of the even the motherland and some of the connections to the motherland from a spiritual aspect. Yeah. And I also know that you tied you. into even like our um, things, even with electronics and technology well while you are a big supporter of technology you also i know for a fact have had conversations and even desmond might be interested in hearing some of this as to the ties between the old form of technology like drumming and to the new forms of technology like the cell phone because yeah. i do know that you explore a lot of that whole connection and how they you know the cell phone is just that gets a, a new version of the talking drum that's exactly all that's exactly <laughs> what it is um I think that we do need to have understand and appreciate our uh, the traditional spiritual systems of the continent because a lot of those are infused in the black church, you know, and the, and the way we worship today. And so, um, you know, we are we also practice in our school um, because we have people from all spiritual systems. We have a general meditation time where we have the kids just focus. On that, but then we also, I've had them, um, you know, we, we teach the drumming, um, especially like I said, we meditate, we focus on uh, some of the principles of Kwanzaa and who, especially the one of uh, self determination and, fo- and who are you, what has the Creator brought you here for, and what is what are your the talents that you have, 
And so to encourage your children to understand that they too have to have a vision for their life. And without it, you're gonna you're gonna be you're gonna mess up. You gotta know what you want want to do. But we also, um, like I said, we have our drum classes, and we have um, made sure that the children understand the connectiveness of the drum. That that is the first that was the first messenger. People could drum and send a message across to uh, what, from one village to another. When the guests arrived, they already knew who was coming, what they were there for, and all of that through the message of the drum. Um, we also, um, in our in our practices, were very in tune to um, like you know practicing our rites of passage, what we do, and then we also naming ceremonies, and which also affirmed people's. Uh, destinies or encourage them to understand that they had their own destiny. And so we're not just rugged individualism, but we practice, you know, community and, and um, you know, the inv- individual within the community, whatever. Um, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> oh, we do no. we have robotics here. We do have computers here. I've had in the past teachers People teach the children how to build computers, but I'm really interested in what you're doing because I I love the idea of of the, of how um, you sat with your friends and figured out a way to address a problem, and I think that we don't do enough of that. We have a lot of problems in our community, and we don't understand how can we fight for against or <laughs> create a space where we can address those issues. I told the children, you know, with um, one of the things that they're going to have to face in their generation is um, China and all of these other countries, these third world countries have now told us that they were no longer going to accept the trash that we were sending to their country. We, We don't, we can't, we can't get rid of our trash, all of our trash. So we're sending it to their countries. And when I went to Sierra Leone, I was absolutely astonished at the amount of garbage that was there, and they were like, well, they're shipping it in, and we're taking England's garbage, and France's garbage, and Germany's garbage, and, you know, all of this garbage, and so now countries are saying, no, you can't destroy our country anymore with this mess, so I challenged my students, I said, so now your generation is to invent ways to use this garbage and turn it into another kind of product that we can, a recycling product, because right now we know we can't burn it. We know that it creates all kinds of disease, um, uh, release of gases into the air. It releases poisons into the soil. So what is a creative way to to deal with this trash? And that was part of the, uh, my question as a science teacher. And then also I, I introduced them to envir- environmental justice, uh, so that they would be aware of the impact of of this this um, um, of uh, this lack of recycling on or these uh, or this introduction into of chemicals and factory waste into black communities or communities of color and how we have our own we have a we have organizations that black led organizations that are fighting for environmental justice. But if we could also add the science of how can we address and modify. So I think it's the coolest thing in the world that you would, you all sat down and strategize on how to, um, you know, 
deal with this stuff. I'm 58, but uh, I appreciate both Nadia and I forgot your name, Sir Desmond. I appreciate your, your energy and youth that you have, Desmond, and, um, and, um, and you know, uh, dealing with this, the problems that you're seeing in your community right now. And I hope you, you continue to, you know, expand your um, platform and move to other areas because there are so many things that this community needs, um, the world community needs, you know, that we can, that we can fix. We're a creative people. We can fix these problems, but we've got to get our children to understand that that's, that that's their natural gift as African people. We can do that. We can we can resolve these issues. Yes, yeah, I imagine that even like issues like climate change, Desmond, and some other issues like that are probably some things that you're even thinking about now in terms of other problems that you might be trying to find solutions to. Like I said, you found the solution of the whole portable charger and things of that nature, but I'm sure you and your business partner are even thinking about other things on a regular basis because I'm, I'm thinking that the entrepreneurial mind is always creating new entrepreneurial ideas and new thoughts on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah. yeah totally. And so I think a part of that was honestly the reason and like things that we actually wanted to do. Um, I am like first generation American. So my family's from Jamaica and then uh, my co-founder, his family's from Ghana. Right. So we've always had that you know, that, I guess that tip of just like wanting to figure something out, you know, impacting our Mm -hmm. communities. Like I still go to Jamaica now where, you know, my aunt lives in an area where hot water is a luxury, right? Like we're still, you know, and and we live in America where like, that's just like common, right? And it's just like, you go to these countries. So I think for me um, and him, actually, we're already doing some certain initiatives and I think a lot of it starts with the youth and just building up what they have because I feel like um, there's a lot of opportunity for innovation um, but a lot of it is just because of being resource constricted um, and just not having the tools of just like going online and figuring this out or like Mm -hmm. having the tools to like you know be in a robotics class and like figure something out so I think that's definitely something that I want to do and I Honestly, that was, like, one of the first companies I started was something that was going to be more impactful in, the, um, in the, like, a third-world country. But um, I think I needed some capital, right? Capital meaning, like, capital to really have some, um, mm-hmm. you know, huge, like, impact and do things and make changes. So I, I definitely yeah. think, like, you know, one of the things that we want to do is, like, obviously sell our company. So I'm definitely going to use some of that to do what I want to do in life, which is, you know, create a better environment for my people, to be honest. Because one of the things that I've always been fascinated by is I went to, um, probably need to go see him again because it's about that time, but I went to my buddy uh, Boyd that runs Choice Cuts, which is a barbershop across from the uh, Marriott in downtown Durham, and he had a gentleman there that was from one of the, um, has tasked one of the African countries, but apparently they are inviting more of us to come into like some of the foreign countries like on the motherland and everything. But I don't think a lot of our people know this, that a lot of these countries are welcoming us because a lot of times we're given this narrative that, you know, there's conflict between the African population and the African-American population. You just said that your partner is from a country that is definitely Ghana. considered like a third Ghana, which is one of the African countries, but, and you're from the um, Caribbean and everything. And a lot of times we oftentimes have this narrative that these countries are 
against us and everything is kind of that whole divide and conquer narrative that a lot of people try to put out there. Which is one, what the gentleman was telling me, and I think he might have even been from Ghana, was that a lot of the, or either Ghana or Guyana, was a lot of these countries are actually inviting Americans to come in and invest and mm-hmm. even buy land in these countries and yep. everything because they yeah. want us to come back to the motherland. Yeah. yeah. And, I, I mean, a part of that is, like, I mean, it's kind of not even good and, like, not as comfortable to be in America anyways, right? So they're seeing that opportunity. Um, and so they see the opportunity to, you know, bridge the gap between, like, what we call African-Americans um, and coming back to, again, the motherland. I think that's a huge opportunity. And, honestly, you know, I do a lot of, like, global research, um, and I, I think that, you know, if these countries continue to do that, um, I mean, uh, and it kind of went back to the point of like, you know, we're not going to take the garbage anymore, but there's just going to be so much like global innovation that America just won't be what it is. Because even what I see right. is like, we're not even the front runners in innovation anymore. Honestly, I think we're like third or fourth in my, you know, concept. I feel like China, India, Africa, and then America, when you talk about like, True changes, we're huge innovation. <laughs> yeah, and we're I'm just saying, like, yeah, we're like, I'm pretty 20, sure. Twenty fifth, twenty sure. sixth. Crazy. And we're like twenty sixth, twenty sixth, in 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 our in academics now. So mm-hmm. we're very uh, yeah for what, the amount of money we have. Um, right. Yeah. And I think that we ranked it even lower than that in some categories. I think you said, I, yeah. I want to say that there was something I read where we were ranked like. 45th. I don't remember what the category was, but it was like, you know, there's what, several hundred countries, and 45th is kind of down there. So, I mean, it might not be yes, all the way exactly. th- toward the back end, but it ain't at the top either. And I, I don't remember the category, but I know that there were a couple of categories of world engagement that we were ranked definitely in the 40s and the 50s. So, you know, we talk about yes. being a world leader, and I'm not saying we're not a world leader, but there are definitely some categories that we are slipping and sliding well, drastically. World. America is a world bully. America is a world bully. So, you know, and, it's, and that's really what it is. If we, and this is the reason why with the curriculum, um, I told my children, I said, listen, do you, can you imagine what knowledge you would have to have in order to melt a rock? So literally, African people were building these, uh, were melting, magne- you know, magnetite. They were melting uh, ore and creating iron out of it. I said, so what kind of innovation, I mean, I try to get my children to think, how would you, what would you have had to see to think that you could actually do that? And then you had to construct an oven out of the resources around you. So they took termite uh, mounds because they were already oxygenated, which, because uh, termites are constantly permeating the soil, so the, the air, I mean, so it was porous already. And so they use this, and then they use flux, and then they, uh, which is like dry straw. And they put this, they assemble this thing, and then they understood that they had to, um, to uh, poke holes in it so that you would have this uh, release of the gases at the top of it and, and everything. But to construct an oven that could melt rock is like off the chain, in my opinion. And so our ancestors were doing this all along the coast of Africa, all throughout Africa, thousands and thousands of years ago. So when you say that you have no technology in, in, in Africa or, or, or because you're a black, 
it's ridiculous. But when I'm, I force my children to watch this video of how these of how our ancestors did that, they, I said they melted a rock. Okay, can you believe that they could do that? And with what was around them, and so it was eco-friendly, and it wasn't emitting toxic fumes into the whole community so everybody could die. You know, they managed it and um, and reused these ovens, and then created these uh, these tools, these farming tools, uh, pots, all of these things that were now after they once they uh, cooled. They were not easily broken. You could not just go and break an axe. So I said, look at all of the chemistry, the physics, the uh, the knowledge of geology that they had to have in order to do this. That is who we are, and that's who we are today. And so we need to, con- but our children need to understand what we were doing before they yeah, came think- here. Yeah, because I yeah. think a lot of times our children don't understand that because, I mean, I'm even thinking about, like, the Great Pyramids and, you know, they might try to give it some explanation yeah. that it came from out of space or some other kind of, like, crazy explanation. But the truth of the matter is they were being built in Egypt and other parts of Africa and even other parts of the world that are definitely exactly. people of color. I'm thinking about the great things that have been constructed in, like, the Mayan area. They did some amazing exactly. irrigation things around the Mayan population for our native brothers and sisters and everything, but a lot of times we don't give these kind of credits or we try to uh, make it some form of a greater mythology that some uh, right. boogeyman somewhere came out there and made it happen. It, it wasn't our folks in our mindset that created these exactly. things. But, um, yeah, th- you have to know who you are. and You have to understand the breadth of, of, of who you are. We're not just one-dimensional people where we just play sports and and entertain and sing and dance and drum. We were, you know, we established governments. We established uh, scientific practices, medicinal practices. Our, um, I was at the um, the Rice Museum in um, Georgetown, South Carolina, in November. And one of the, the critiques of that um, of that process of growing rice was compared. To the building of the pyramids, they said if you looked at the the, the techniques and the um, the, um, the uh, ingenuity of these Africans who built these levees and created this rice culture, which made South Carolina, by the way, the second wealthiest state in the in the United States at that time, it uh, they said it was only comparable to the building of the pyramids. So we brought that same knowledge over here with us when we trans over through through the transatlantic uh, slave trade, with under the gun, with no financial reward from it. Just imagine. I mean, why we should? I mean, I tell the kids, I say we should be Wakanda right now. In my opinion, integration really hinders our ability to achieve that level of tech of technical savvy. And um, uh, intellectual accomplishment It really hindered our community And so what we need to do is go back Learn who we were What we did So we can understand that we it's, No one else can forge this future for us Except us We can do it and, But we have to understand also, that we can do it right. It's probably also understanding our history Because a lot of people I mean I know and I know you know Dr. Uh, Noni But a lot of the great builders of 
uh, Durham itself were African American um, architects. I mean, exactly. one of the great architects was yeah, exactly. that also helped build the Duke campus was um, an exactly. African American architect. There was definitely exactly. um, a gentleman that helped build D.C. So there was a lot of these kind of exactly. folks that were famously known, but a lot of our kids, unfortunately, don't know these folks because our education system aren't teaching about these people. Exactly. I, I was just going to chime in and say that, too. Um, and that's the unfortunate part of everything. I feel like, you know, when I started to learn about, like, who I was and where I came from, it was because of the intentionality of, like, searching and, like, doing the digging and going back home and talking to people. But, you know, a lot of, again, our gener like, my generation at least, like, we just rely on school to tell us what it is and, like, that's the exactly. wrong thing to do because they're they're going to tell you the history that they want you to believe. They want you to, you know, know about. They're not going to tell you about how phenomenal, like, your people are. You know, they're never really going to put it in that light. So it's just like it, it's sad that our education system is set up that way. But, you know, you really have to be intentional on digging and figuring out who you are, just kind of going back to what you guys were talking about as well. Yeah. Nadia, I also think. Sorry, this is Nadia here again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I also think that it's kind of it's up to us as well as a community. Again, I don't think that we should be looking to other cultures to tell us about us. Like you know, mm-hmm. and right. I think sometimes that was the miss. You know, like you know, like to your school or like you know, just certain things. It's just like I think us even having that expectation. You know, um, and exactly. I just feel like. We we don't even need to have the expectation that because even if they did it, they're not gonna do it right. We're not gonna be pleased. We know us. We're gonna be like uh uh-uh, uh that ain't it. So I just feel like we just have to kind of take charge of how we want our story to be told, how we would like for it for our kids to know things. What do we want our black community to be remembered by? And I think that we really have to take it into our hands. You know, if we want to see. You know, I remember when the big thing was like, well, Disney's never done a black movie, and they did Princess and the Frog, and I just kind of felt like our black movies, like for our kids, need to be made made by our black our black animators. We have black people who can draw. We have black people who can do comics. Like, we don't need to ask Disney to do a black movie for us. We need to be doing it for ourselves. And exactly. I just feel like when we start to kind of do that and just kind of take our own lead and be great and kind of go back to those you know, ancestral, you know, things that we know our ancestors did and how strong they were. I just feel like we don't need a a handout or a validation from anybody else. Like, we really need to start to do it on our own. Yeah, I I say to that. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I can see that for sure. Um, Desmond, uh, you were talking about uh, just some of the things that you learned as an entrepreneur, so I just want you to kind of like go further into some of the things that you've learned in your own development as an entrepreneur, some of the lessons that you've learned. You've shared some, but I'd like to hear if there's any others that you would like folks to know about that you've learned in the 10 years or so that you've been an entrepreneur. Or was your first entrepreneurial experience as a teenager? Because I know some folks actually became entrepreneurs when they were like teenagers or even young kids. No, I wouldn't say I was an entrepreneur at that age because I didn't set up a business and monetize off of it. But I think one of the things that I figured out was my skill set that translates to how I'm able to do what I'm able to do as an entrepreneur now, which is like build relationships um, and really focus on value 
um, that you can give to others more so than like receiving from everybody else. And I feel like, again, the whole like energy and like the whole spiritual context is just really like defining your whole mentality or like your life off of like what you can do for others and like just understanding that it's going to come back to you, you know? Um, I, I think some of the things that I've learned is, um, and I, I hone in on like resourcefulness a lot because I feel like a lot of people don't really, um, you know, kind of use their, uh, honestly, like resources at hand, um, their network. I feel like one of the things that I hear a lot um, is, you know, it comes from that whole corporate mentality of like, you know, going to the C-suite of, you know, whatever company in order to get your, your deal or to get your, you know, your way in or selling a concept. And I feel like as I've been able to, you know, matriculate over the past few years alone, I'm starting to see that like people that I went to college with or that I went to high school with are working for these companies nowadays. And honestly, just leveraging them, you know, and networking with them and sharing ideas, like they're the ones that are sparking innovation. They're the ones that are bringing the ideas to the table that changes the whole paradigm for a Fortune 500 company. So I think that's something that, like, we don't do enough is just, like, network and be resourceful laterally more as far as, like, like, top-down or whatever. I'm sorry. Um, So I, I think, like, those are some of the things that I'm figuring out. Um, and then I feel like a lot of people, well, you know, I feel like one of the things that I've done and that was super successful is not limiting myself to one particular market. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I was, why I was able to do, be successful with this crowdfund raise is because I was going through, I mean, I was going to events in Durham in Raleigh, in Wilmington, and, you know, Winston-Salem, Greensboro, and I live in Charlotte, and I didn't have a job, but, like, I figured out a way to, like, connect to these markets, because you never know when those individuals in a different market can see what you see and potentially take your company from one aspect to another, and I feel like a lot more people need to be intentional on spreading their wings outside of Durham, spreading their wings outside of Charlotte. You know, and, and sometimes it, it, we just get limited because we're, again, resource constricted. But there's so many free events that are out there that I just went to in order to just build a network. And I, I feel like, again, just going to finding, like, what I was good at and what was going to get my, you know, get attention from people is just, like, building these relationships. So those are just some of the things I could think off top that I was able to do. And I would love for more and more people to do as well. Do you think that we then, do enough in terms of? Do you think we do enough in terms of using things like Riot and Innovate Durham? I know that there were some other African American business owners, but I did not see a number of us at these kind of events. I know that a lot of people do definitely use Black Wall Street and some of their crowdsourcing because that's a Black African American oriented kind of crowdsourcing opportunity. But things like Riot and Innovate Durham are not necessarily African American. I was just wondering, do you think that we use those enough in terms of actually trying to mm-hmm make our businesses aware and make get the opportunities to go for it the way that you did. We don't be, and it's not our fault. I'll tell you that. So I feel like it was access to like, so they're called like accelerators and incubators um, and like, you know, startup early stage companies that, you know, go through like business model, go to market strategies. They get tied with mentors and all this thing. Definitely superb. And a lot of the reason why I'm here today, but you know, we don't, one, that's not taught in school, 
let alone like I came from an HBCU. I'm trying to get some of those ordeals and initiatives into my school now. Like it's kind of been in like not to like play that whole petty game or like, you know, feel sorry for me game, but it's been like a closed door to us for a long time. Um, to where, like, they just weren't opening the doors for everybody, to be honest. And there was just structure around it. And that's why, like, the whole capital influx was just to these companies that would go through these accelerator companies, but you had to go to, like, an Ivy League school to go to these accelerators and, like, different things like that. And so, like, it was kind of made up to, for us not to win. But I think the more and more, like, people like me or people like that before me that just get – you know, hip to the game. It's just like, now I'm telling all my friends about it. You know, I'm telling all my network about it. And I'm seeing other people that look like me form these communities of co-working spaces and accelerators curated around, you know, African-American people of color, you know, so that we can get the same type of opportunities. But I I don't see enough of us using it, but I think a lot of it was systematically in place like a lot of other things are, you know. But you know, the more and more we get exposure to what we should do, I do see more and more people taking that chance of getting into these programs. But, you know, I think it's just like a part of the game and where the tech space is right now and where we are in the tech space as African-Americans. We're we're not involved. Like, I, one of my biggest things to people nowadays is, like, think about your job 10, 15 years from now and, like, think about how – automation is going to influence that. Like I see, like I went to CES uh, two weeks ago in Vegas and it's the biggest like, you know, tech conference in the nation. And it's like robotics and like automation is going to take a lot of our jobs. So what can we do in order to be quote unquote ahead of the curve where I can, I don't have to go to college, but I can get a certification. I can get this free programming just to learn about that tech space, right? And I think a lot of people just get deterred. Um, And I I talk to a lot of people that are older, and I say, like, it doesn't matter your age. It is difficult. It is a little bit more difficult, to be honest. But if you're committed to, like, just learning and spending time to to get it, like, you'll figure it out. It's not rocket science. I feel like a lot of people that are getting these tech jobs are not better than us. You know, like, they just spend the time or they have the opportunities to kind of open up the doors at an earlier age. But I think all of these dynamics go into us being more involved into programs like Riot. Um, and we have one in uh, Charlotte called City Startup Labs and stuff like that. But I guess the time is now, to be honest. Yeah, it sounds like it. And Dr. Noni, he, he brings up an interesting point. And it's one that Bradley brought up as well, Bradley Simmons, the African-American uh, uh, drummer that does a lot with African drumming and things of that nature. But unfortunately, some of our own institutions are doing a great job of supporting our own. I imagine that Desmond has run into head roadblocks. It sounds like when he's gone to Winston Salem State and probably Central. I know that Doctor. I know Doctor Bradley told me that when he wanted to teach African drumming at our HBCUs, he was running into a lot of roadblocks. So it seems like even some of our own educational institutions are creating roadblocks. Yeah, I would. I would agree. Um... Even for my doctorate, one of the uh, things I requested was to um, conduct research on uh, uh, implementing culturally relevant instruction and um, response intervention methods, you know, just evaluating how teachers implemented or uh, used this in their classroom. 
And it was like, no, we, you know, you can't come in here and ask us how we're teaching. And so, you know, there is a resistance. And, you know, in Durham, you would think that that would be kind of easy to achieve, but it was it was shot down by, um, and so I had to completely come up with a completely um, different plan, and I still was able to engage, you know, um, teachers, and I found out that a lot of them really did appreciate, you know, um, we're trying to implement some of these processes of how to educate, uh, you know, brown children and make sure that we had the quality, you know, black and brown children, so we could make sure we enhance the quality of education. But, yeah, there's a resistance in our community, and this is why I keep going back to the education. If you don't value yourself, it's going to be hard for you to value others within your space. You You can't value what you don't think is valuable. And so when we don't know who we are, I mean, I mean, it sounds, you know, you know, corny, I guess, at this point, like, it's the it's stating the obvious, but it's true. If you don't value yourself, then you will not, you will not support your people. And so, you know, or you have decided that this is the, the path that we're on is okay. Never mind that the majority of us are suffering from it. That we've got to make a conscious decision, but I agree with Nadia that we also can't worry about everybody. You have to decide. This is what I'm going to do. This is who I'm going to take with me. And those who want to, who don't want to join me on the path, fine. Get out of my way. That's mostly where I am. Just get out of my way and don't stop me. And then maybe later on you'll figure out how great I am. But in the meantime, I'm not going to stop mm-hmm. doing what I'm doing. Yeah, and uh, Desmond, you brought up you brought up an interesting point as well um, just a minute ago, and it's a conversation I've had with a lot of my friends. And I've actually born in 1962, so I'm 57, um, and I'll be 58 in <laughs> July and everything. So I'm actually one of the old heads uh, on this show and everything. But it's the whole concept of the gig economy because I think sometimes that we are training a lot of our kids and our people in general, not just our kids, but kids of all races, ethnicities, orientations, whatever to go into work for corporations and to go back into what some people would consider like the plantation mentality. But as you just stated, and I've always said this for a long time, we're in a gig economy, which means that a lot of people are also, you know, having to work for Uber, having to work for DoorDash or Grubhub or these different kind of gig jobs or even create their own gig. So it seems to me that we're kind of defeating our own purpose if we're telling people to go to work for corporations when, as you just said, a lot of the jobs are not going to be in corporations because the robots are going to have those jobs. So we're going to have to work in other kind of jobs. Yeah, yes, and yes. I mean, the, oh, I'm sorry. Stuff. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. I'm you can sorry. go. I was going to say the gig economy is going to be like a $250 billion industry by 2025, right? Like, these, like I'm literally, even us to date, we're actually – bringing in another component of the gig economy um, for our concept as well, right? And so you do see that narrative. So, like, the industry and the nation and everything is shifting there, but we have this mentality that is literally – but it's because of, you know, sadly – you think about the individuals that are, you know, pouring this narrative on, like, kids and stuff like that, but, you know, that's all they know. So you can't even really fault them because they grew up in a time where – 
you know, if you weren't thinking that mentality, like you, you were kind of behind the eight ball, but now it's just like one of the things that I think, you know, and I know you say gig economy, but a lot of kids, kids are making millions of dollars from playing video games right now. You know, when I was right. growing up, my mom didn't let me play like more than like two hours a week because she was just saying it was like, you know, obviously not good for you, this, that, and the other, but kids are making millions of dollars. So it's just like, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's just like education to like older generations on just different ways to make a living nowadays. And I think when that shit yeah. happens, it'll be a little bit easier for people to understand that like, it's okay if my kid graduates high school and kind of wants to figure it out for a while. He can still make money by Ubering, DoorDash, Grubhub. Like, again, there's so many different concepts until he figures it out instead of potentially wasting time in college when he doesn't even have, you know, like that's not his fit, you know. So I just just feel like we just got to be a little bit more open nowadays to where and 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 see the trends but again it comes back from like education and like really understanding how technology is shifting a lot of the industries and a lot of the behaviors and the lifestyles we have today that's going to be literally changing tomorrow but yeah 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 so i agree with that Kind of wrap up the uh, conversation. We've got about eight minutes, but I did have two quick questions. One, I would like to hear from all three of you, and you kind of alluded to it, Desmond, with the conference. And actually, my friend Brett Chambers went to that same conference. But where do you see the country being, say, 10 years from now and, uh, let's say, 25 years from now uh, in terms of the where the where we will be as an entrepreneurial ship as just, or just the country? in general, if you were to make a prediction. We're in 2020 now, the first month of 2020, so let's say 2030 and 2055. 2030, I can see, you know, I mean, because it's already here, which is crazy, but, um, you know, like the self-driving cars, everything being autonomous, um, you know, and us really living a quote-unquote Jetson lifestyle. Um, I totally see that. I can't say 2050 because I literally don't know. Because of, like, especially um, over the last few years of, like, just the research that I've been able to look into um, with, like, when you talk about, like, AI and, like, machine learning and robots and stuff like that and where things – I really don't know where we're going to be at. But I know in the next 10, I could, I could honestly say maybe it's not every city or every country in the world, but where we're at, I definitely think there's a part of – that, you know, again, just everything is automated. It's literally, you know, whether it's voice activated or like, you know, something like at your fingertips that you can literally, you know, be here and then in essence be at work in like light speed type of thing. Um, That's how I think the world is going, to be honest. Well, I'm going to defer to Dr. Noni last. So Nadia, what are you thinking? Then I'll get Dr. Noni. Um, definitely 2030. I'm hoping that um, the black community can use this decade, um, especially 2020, as a fresh start to start to pull out some businesses. Um, even just piggybacking on like corporate America and working for these jobs, I think that black people need to have an exit plan um, just because um, have something else on the side going for you. Um, the more black businesses we can ha- we can have, the more black people we can hire and work for ourselves um, so that we don't have to go through this 
thing where we're getting flagged for our resume because my name is Laquan and yours is Ben, or just um, working for our people, understanding our people. We don't have we have our own venture capitalists, we have our own um, investors, we have our own homes, our own contractors, things like that. I would just really love to see that boom in the next ten years um, and really take a chunk of the trillion dollar industry that we give to everybody else. Um, and then for 2055, I would hope that we can all look at the um, benefits to putting in that work and have be a lot more self-sufficient um, within our culture and just continue to let it grow and encourage and have this question again on Martin Luther King Day and just say that we've really come a long way. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. De- mm-hmm. Definitely, Dr. Noni. Well, I agree. To, a, um, to some extent about the AI, um, I'm not sure that it won't implode because I think we do have to be very mindful of the climate change and the impact of, uh, of the climate on our communities. If we don't uh, do radical uh, changes in, the, in our approaches to caring for the earth, nothing is going to be here. Um, I think that, we, there, that there will be technology. I think the technology, though, is not going to be able to completely er- eradicate humanity because of simple things like the other day I at PayPal, I wanted to change my phone number, and the machine wouldn't allow me to do it. And because of the technology, I had to go, we had to go all the way back to old school things where they're going to have to mail me my refund. They couldn't transfer the money to another account. It was all kinds of stuff because the AI was ineffective or you know, there, there's, a, there's one thing with, with a human you can do that you cannot do with artificial intelligence. Um, I also believe that we have, um, that because of, there is a revolution that's occurring throughout the world. People are, re, are revolting against this um, millionaire being the, uh, the billionaire being in charge of everybody. So I think we're going to be into and have a more, humane and um, uh, environment. It's going to be a lot of warfare, uh, a lot of um, well, there's going to be a lot of revolution to attain it. But I believe by uh, 2055, you know, we will have things like um, universal health care, universal education, and all those sort of things. Um, so that's what I envision. But I think the next 10 years are going to be revolutionary in a, in a fight for humanity, humane treatment of all people, and the treatment of how, how we treat the earth. Yep, I definitely agree with you on that, uh, Dr. Noni, and uh, you yeah. bring up an interesting point because actually, like I mentioned earlier, one of the jobs I work at is Measurement Incorporated, and actually I'll be starting back on there because we always have downtime. We have kind of like that teacher schedule, so we're down for a few months, but it's getting to start back of grading those test papers. But part of the reason that us humans are still grading those test papers is because of nuances. And there are certain things that they've been trying to do computers and grade the computers, but there are certain things, no matter what we think about testing, that they still need to have a human eye look at because the computer doesn't quite get the nuances. So for that reason, that's why Hank still has his company and other companies like that that exist because they know for a fact that there are those nuances that only exactly. humans can exactly. understand right now. So that's why those kind of companies exist. And you're right, those nuanced kind of jobs will probably still be around. 
Uh, got two minutes to go, so before we all get out, I want to thank all of you for being guests on the show. You were thank a great, great guest and definitely enjoyed the conversation. But before you leave, I wanted to hear from all three of you, and I think I'll start with Natalie, then go to Desmond, then go to Dr. Noni. If you would give us your contact information and the website so that if folks have been listening and would like to continue to learn more about what you're doing, they can find out. So we'll start with you, Nadia, if you'll tell folks how they can reach you on social media websites or however you want them to contact you. Yeah, absolutely. You can go to my website at AfricanAmericanTheBeautiful.com, and you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at AfricanAmericanTheBeautifulCo. Um, both of those are the same. Look forward to reaching out to you guys. Thank you. Uh, Desmond, how can folks reach you to learn about the uh, portable battery charger effort as well as any of the other businesses that you've got going on? Yeah, totally. Um, so our main website is... Um, battery exchange so battery and then the letter x c h a n g e dot c o um and then that can be found on instagram twitter and facebook um on instagram it's battery exchange inc um and then my own personal page is uh worldwide wigs um w i g g s um and that is on instagram and twitter as well all right. And Dr. Noni? We're on Facebook, St. Thea Nation. And we are on our my um, website is www.stthea.org. Well, like I said, definitely appreciate it. All three of you being on the show. And uh, I know that uh, not just myself, but also Dean, appreciate it having you on. And we will have this show re-aired on uh, tomorrow on the uh, Skyhawk Network because we have a partnership with them, so they will be re-airing it then. And, Dean, you want to tell folks the other places that they can find it as well? Sure, why not? You know what? We got a whole bunch of them. If you missed the replay tomorrow, you can catch us on Radio Public, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, TuneIn, Stitcher, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, CastBox, and right here on Blog Talk Radio. Before we leave, I'm going to give a quick shout-out to my sis, Rhapsody, whose birthday is actually tomorrow. So happy birthday in advance. And like I always say, when you walk outside your front door, showtime in the world is your stage. Just make sure that people are not watching the rehearsal. This is six-man Dean Geronimo. Y'all have an outstanding week. I'll see y'all in seven days. For the next seven days, we'll have another outstanding guest. We'll have Garrett Davis, who is a theater friend of mine from Wharton, as well as some other business sites and maybe even some comedians or so that will be calling us. You know me, always out there reaching out to the community. So we should have another lively discussion on next week as well. So do tune in, and we'll have another fun conversation on next week also. So until next Monday, see you and peace.